Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, uh, and I am very happy to have a, a special guest today who I'm going to introduce in a second. But before I do that, I just want to take a, a moment because, uh, you know, it was summertime and uh, we did uh, a few podcasts, not too many, on and off a little bit. And... Um, but I was hearing from a lot of people uh, about the podcast that they were listening to it. And, and I was actually really, um, really touched and, and appreciative. Uh, this podcast started in March of 2019. So it's really just at about two and a half years. Uh, and I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who, who listens in. I started doing the podcast with my friend, John Yu, uh, without really knowing anything about podcasts and not really thinking much about podcasts as, uh, you know, not, not understanding what makes for a good podcast and, and how people do it. And I'm, I'm really um, actually surprised, if not shocked, that so many people seem actually to listen into the podcast from all over. I'll, I'll hear people from Asia and, and Europe and, and the likes. So I, I really appreciate it. And we're going to try to keep going with it. So just a thank you to folks as we start up a new academic year. Uh, and let's get right into our, our interview today. Uh, I'm I'm very happy today to be joined by Habi. Now, Habi, that's H-A-B-I, uh, is a doctoral student in political science at Purdue University. Um, Habi requested I not use her last name, although if you uh, know where we're going with the interview, you've probably read some of her pieces, particularly at Law and Liberty, but uh, at other sites, uh, which have been extremely thoughtful and, and actually generating uh, a, a good amount of attention. And that's why I asked Hobby to, to come on today. So uh, we're going to get right into it. So Hobby, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you for having me. So uh, as I mentioned, you're um, uh, you're a, a PhD student uh, in political science at Purdue, and I know you've written a lot about uh, American society. You've, re- you've written about religious topics, moral topics, but you've written uh, a good deal and, and very interestingly about, of course, Chinese society, where you're from China, uh, about Confucianism, about morality and the like. And so before we start talking about what you've written, uh, what can you tell us? What are you comfortable telling us about yourself. We know you're a student, but what else? Um, I'm really horrible at uh, introducing myself. I always... We all are. Don't worry. That's okay. I'm doing uh, better with answering questions, but I guess uh, uh, social protocol dictates me at least to give you guys a few sentences of me where I'm come from. Uh, well, I guess uh, sh- long story short is that I'm from China. I lived in China for 33 years, so um, my whole life almost. And uh, you mentioned I'm a doctoral student at Purdue studying political science. And so currently I am working on my dissertation. And my dissertation is about Confucianism and uh, totalitarianism. So the, the very complex dissertation distilled into a one sentence that would be, I'm going to argue, Confucianism has, in fact, laid the moral and uh, intellectual foundation of Chinese totalitarianism. So, in other words, I'm going to argue that Confucianism, in fact, 
has prepared the Chinese people um, for accepting, even preferring a totalitarian rule for a, a totalitarian approach to politics. So that's the dissertation I'm currently working on. And that, that's obviously controversial or, or, or in many precincts would be controversial. Uh, first, are you, are, are, are you near completing the dissertation? Uh, uh, not, not near, but uh, well, my ambition is to get it down in the year. So my Great. goal is to finish it by the summer. Fantastic. Yeah. Next summer. That, that's yes. great. But I know, I mean, having, you know, done the dissertation and many of us have, we know never to ask about when is the dissertation, when is the dissertation going to be done, but, but just wanted to know. So uh, obviously at some point that will become a book and I think it'll be probably a, a very um, provocative uh, book. So building off of that, um, you've written a number of, of essays, as I had mentioned at the top of the podcast about uh, Confucianism. Um, one of them at Law and Liberty, which was from uh, earlier this year in May, was titled What the West Got Wrong About China, and, and essentially argued that, though you didn't use totalitarianism as much as you used the term authoritarianism, uh, that Confucianism is, at its core, an, an authoritarian system. And and there are, of course, arguments that no Confucianism is humanistic. And you think of the work of uh, Theodore de Berry at Columbia and, and many others who wrote about the humanistic tradition in Confucianism, Confucianism, and that would be often counterpointed with the legalism of Han Feitze and, and others. But you're actually arguing that it's the, the hierarchical nature and even the deeper conceptions of ancestor worship uh, in Confucianism that lead to authoritarianism or as you're, and as you're saying now, totalitarianism. Um, what leads you to this conclusion in, in the face of so many who see Confucianism as a much more benign system? Um, it has long time been my suspicion that the Western has a distorted image about everything about China from politics to culture uh, just to the civilization in general, uh, so to speak. So take Confucianism as an example. Yeah, when the Western talk about Confucianism, they always think about uh, benevolence, you know, all those rosy pictures about uh, many things related to humanity. True, I'm not going to argue against that because there are many things in Confucius teachings that do um, teach about the goodness of human hearts, this and that. But my uh, my approach to Confucianism is through the political lens. So basically, I mean, I view Confu Confucianism as a political theory. And uh, in that theory, I, I argue it is actually totalitarian by nature. So here, I think we should really briefly define totalitarianism before we proceed. Um, so the 20th century literature generally, okay, I'm talking about it in the field of political philosophy. So almost all political philosophers define totalitarianism as a blanket term for ideology, for totalitarian ideology, fascism and communism. So basically there are two uh, totalitarian ideology, fascism and uh, communism. You know, Nazism, in, in fact, is a branch of fascism. 
Is that right pronunciation? Fascism. Yeah, na- Nazism is a branch of fascism. Yeah, so basically there are two camps of totalitarian ideology, fascism and communism. And so political philosophers, they generally just treat totalitarianism as a blanket term for those ideologies. And, uh, um, but I treat, here's how I define, in my project, here's how I define totalitarianism. I see it as a unique approach to politics is a, um, is a unique way to conduct politics. By that, I mean, so totalitarianism basically presuppose there is a final human utopia. This approach, they presuppose a final human utopia, a perfect state. So they, they starts from that premise. And uh, uh, then for, for them, so politics, the problem of politics is basically about how to engineer society, guiding humans to that paradise. So this is a totalitarian way to conduct politics. And that's how I define totalitarianism in my project. And so whereas this is essentially how Confucius view humans and human society, you know, um, so if uh, if we look at Confu- uh, one of Confucius classics, the filial piety, and uh, in the very beginning, Confucius teaches his disciple that uh, there is a final human, there is a perfect state. For Confucius, the perfect state is not some abstract version. It's, it act, had actually existed in the past. For Confucius, the perfect state is the feudal Zhou dynasty, 1,000 year prior to the coming year or something. Sorry, I don't quite remember the, the, the period of that dynasty. Anyway, so that was a, that this final state had existed in the past. And so for Confucius and his mission, his political doctrine is to guide humans, guide, uh, guide people back to that um, final utopian state. And so this is how Confucius view politics. This is, is essentially the totalitarian way to view politics. There is a final human utopia. And uh, our goal is just to shape society, shape people, and doing that so we can arrive at that uh, paradise. So you have, when you, and you're making this argument, um, you have a very current concern in mind, meaning we could easily, and it'd be fascinating to just do the whole discussion here on political philosophy and political theory um, and, and compare Confucianism with with legalism or with, with other varieties of both Chinese and, and Western thought, although every listener will know that I'm utterly incapable of doing that, but I could at least maybe ask a few questions and, and get some good answers from you. But what's really interesting about your your argument is that it's not theoretical. I mean, ironically, right? It's, it's about theory, but it's not a theoretical argument. Your argument is that this A predisposes China to being totalitarian. And, and there's even within the law and liberty, sort of a little mini colloquium that developed, there were others who disagreed with you on that. But B, you're pointing out that Americans in particular, but the West, didn't get that 
And so our policy towards China has been based on a fundamental misunderstanding. Is that correct? So could you uh, be more specific about this? Yeah, so, so our, our policy, as you start off the, the article on what America got wrong about China, you state that for, for 40 years, and this is a point that many make, and we've made a lot of times on the, the podcast, American policy was predicated on engaging with China so that we would ultimately change China to become more liberal, engage with the international liberal world. Uh, and China would, at least at first, act more like a responsible stakeholder, as we used to say. And then secondly, would ultimately change inside. You, you had U.S. presidents of both parties say that. And your argument is that that fundamentally misunderstands China. Is that correct? C correct. Because uh, I think that uh, delusion, I call it a delusion. A delusion, comes, uh -huh. yeah, comes from a, how should I put it? So this is my criticism of, uh, sorry, I strike that. That's okay, this is gonna be great. No, we, I mean, we want to hear, you know, you're able um, to read this stuff, you've read it much more than we have. So your fundamental criticism of Americans is what? Because this I think is very important for okay, those who yes. presume they understand China. Let me start uh, from a question I had for a long time. I had been for a long time curious of why America politicians or even just the scholars, they assume that as long as they help China get rich and uh, China will, fund, will is, uh, 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 eventually be liber liberalized, uh, i.e. Mm -hmm. becoming one more like America, like the Western right. democratic society. Maybe we can start our conversation with you helping me understand why on earth does America have such a a assumption, a almost a conviction that as long as elite, as long as so basically prosperity um, necessarily leads to democracy. I don't understand why people would think that because 300 years ago, I don't think America was that rich. I don't know the GDP of of uh, America in the uh, in the uh, 19th century, but I doubt America was that rich, right? So maybe you can help me understand why we have this delusion. Prosperity necessarily needs to democracy. Well, that's a great question. If if I tried to answer my my deep ignorance of America and of politics would be revealed. So I'll, I'll probably not try to answer that, but I think you've, you know, you've actually put your, your finger on, on something core. And I, I think it goes back to questions, uh, longstanding questions in political science about the role of an independent middle class, which we did have in America in, in the colonial period, demanding political freedoms. That's to put it relatively crassly um and and actually by comparison with many europeans um in the 18th century uh, americans were better off there was not the same type of uh poverty in america simply because of the the natural riches and so um and nor did we have an, an urban poor in the way that you had in uh in europe for example, in, in the 18th century. Uh, all of that developed, uh, but the the bedrock of individual sort of yeoman farmers, free middle class had already been uh, solidified uh, in America. 
Um, so your question is actually a very interesting one because it, it's it's a question of political perception on the part of Americans as to how the world changes. And there's a, a debate in America that, that's been going on uh, about the American role in the world and whether Americans, because of their position uh, from the colonial and early Republic period on, were determined to change the world in their image, or whether that was a later development. Uh, did that come about only with the rise of American colonialism in the 1890s in, in the Philippines and uh, and and intervention in uh, Cuba and the Spanish-American War. So you're you're asking, I think, some of these these sort of fundamental questions, but more specifically, and I can probably hear some listeners screaming this already, is the post-war, the post-Cold War consensus, the Washington consensus, that once communism and the Soviet Union had been defeated then clearly the the only viable socio-political program out there was liberal capitalism as as we understood it and uh with the late 1980s early 1990s collapse of the soviet union and the reform and opening up in china under deng xiaoping the presumption was well of course this has been proved so to get rich whether Dong said it was glorious or not, was also in the American eyes to become liberal because otherwise the system wouldn't wouldn't work and you would have through wealth distribution a growing middle class who would therefore demand, as they did in Europe, greater political freedom. So it was it was a self-reinforcing system. And I think your your question gets to this this moment in time. Uh, the end of history moment in American belief about about both global development and the and the progress of world history um, that, as you point out in this article, what the West got wrong about China, then guided the following thirty years of development and um, and interaction between the West and and China. Your point, as I take it, is that not only was that fundamentally wrong we all along the way weren't in essence doing our due diligence to understand actually what was happening in China. So let me, having talked a lot now, let me turn the question back on you. If I've, at least as I understand it, given a bit of an explanation about why Americans would think that getting rich leads to liberalism, let me ask you a different question. Why do you think that after a century and more of study of China, and of Confucianism and Chinese thought, granted at varying levels of sophistication. But why do you think that Americans fundamentally misread Confucianism and therefore misread the nature of China? Okay, so two things. First, just a quick uh, response to what you just said. So you mentioned this uh, uh, Washington consensus, right? And so in a way, actually, I'm happy to see that uh, with the past two decades of empirical evidence, uh, now we see uh, uh, the, 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 the Washington consensus um, just collapsed in front of, in the face of the, the empirical evidence in China. So now China is super rich, but uh, of course, I mean, I mean, uh, in terms of the overall GDP, not in terms of uh, the the per capita personal income, but China is is uh, quite rich. That's just uh, irredu irreducible. 
Uh, okay, so back to your your second question. So, sorry, could you repeat your question? Uh, yeah, it, it's just it's a simple one that that you know honestly maybe it takes an American who was part oh, of this so, to study. But why did Americans get yeah Confucianism so wrong if we've been studying it for a century? What what was as you look at the American arguments about Confucianism? What was wrong? Where did we go? What was the original sin? Okay, let's just put Confucianism aside for a second. Uh, now I remember your question. So, okay. what, uh, why uh, after centuries of studying China, uh, why America get it got it wrong fundamentally? I th okay, so I th the reason is that uh, America studied China within the framework of within the the Western framework. By that I mean confined in your own self-referential imagination. It's almost impossible for Americans or Westerners to ponder another reality. I don't know if that English makes sense. So get back to my uh, my first question to you. Uh, actually, I had a, my own answer to that question. So the- Oh, well, I, I wish I had known that. I wouldn't have talked so much. So give us yeah. your answer to the question. No, I, I, no, I wanted to just, uh, so this is how I, I, I think. So uh, through a dialogue, this is how I, I, I can think and talk better than doing a monologue. Um, so I, th I think for, for Americans, People, you people take um, democracy or freedom or all those like democratic ideals, equality, um, freedom, all the rest as given. And you think all those things are universal values. They must be appreciated and valued and chosen by all people across cultures, across civilizations. But I don't think that's the case. You know, um, the why America got, got China wrong is because China is a completely different civilization. And the, the values there are different, are fundamentally different from the values here. So let me put it in this way. You know, all those uh, so-called self, um, uh, what's, what's the word? Self, uh, self evident, you know, all mm -hmm. those self evidence. Self evident, yeah. Yeah, those evidence, self evidence, uh, truth, like individual has the intrinsic rights to, unalienable uh, rights to life, liberty, and uh, prosperity. None right. of that exists in Chinese culture. None of that uh, is, is being talked about in Confucianism. No, th those are not more ideals in Chinese culture. But to, to counter, not to counter it, but to offer um, a complication, I mean, clearly in Western political theory, we have long experience with arguments for uh, authoritarian, if not totalitarian approaches. Plato in the Republic is essentially authoritarian, where the, where the state, as you write, uh, in this this great piece, again, the piece is what the West got wrong about China on law and liberty, among others, um, where you write um, the state is prior to the family in China, whereas in the West we we take it as individuals, and yet for Plato in the Republic, the state is prior, and and children are to be taken away from their parents, and they are to be 
segregated in terms of their their natural ability. So I'm not arguing that you you've you're saying what you're saying about us is wrong, but I am interested in that we do have the intellectual background to to see authoritarianism or totalitarianism, to recognize it and even to prescribe it for societies. What interests me is is the 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 bigger argument you're making that we somehow willfully missed this in China. And that's what I'm I'm wondering why you think that might be. Maybe a way to, to get at this in, in one way or, or even in a reverse way is to talk a little bit about another article that you wrote, which was on Wang Huning, uh, the man who understood America, um, who sits on the Politburo now, uh, is um, the called Xi, Xi Jinping's brain, uh, perhaps was the, the most fundamental uh, theoretician or thinker, uh, even for Hu Jintao, possibly even Jiang Zemin. And you talk about his 1988 book, America versus uh, America yeah, Against America. It. Yeah, which is not, uh, unbelievably, is not translated and and, and has to be. Um, and uh, I actually talked about Wang Huning with... Um, uh, David Ownby and some others uh, on an earlier uh, podcast. Uh, but you wrote a very long, very interesting article again at Law and Liberty about the man who, under the Chinese, who understood America, Wan Huning. Um, if we didn't get China, as we've been talking about, we didn't understand China, um, why could somebody like Wan Huning understand America? Maybe it's a back door into trying to understand the 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 intellectual blindness that Americans have. Because you write about how Wang came here in 1988. He traveled to uh, 20 or more states and universities and all these people and wrote, met all these people, interviewed these people and wrote a really perceptive book that actually, as you, as you said, quotes from all the great thinkers in Western history. Um, why could Wang, uh, steeped in Chinese communist teaching and learning, why could he understand America, but we in a free system can't understand China? Wang, he understands. Yeah, he understands. Yeah, I, I'm glad you, you brought up Wang Huning. I was just going to to uh, cite him as a, a evidence of me saying that um, Chinese, the, the moral ideas in the two civilization, the two society, China and America, they are fundamentally different. Here in, in America, uh, freedom is the moral ideal for most people, at least maybe until now. <laughs> uh, but at least for the past few centuries, the freedom is the highest uh, value, highest ideal people value freedom over many other, other things. But Freedom is not the moral ideal in Chinese culture. It was, it has never been, and nowhere in Confucius writing you would see freedom. Freedom really is a new concept. is a is a new thing um, imported in China um, in the early twentieth century. And so that's one. So my point is that the moral ideals in both cultures, they are fundamentally different. So now back to Wang Huning. Wang Huning does understand America cognitively very well, but he does not, he does not approve 
of Western civilization. He does not approve of American ideals. He understands all those democratic ideals theories, but he does, uh, does not approve of those. He is uh, fundamentally an heir of Chinese culture, of traditional Chinese culture. So do we have uh, so many questions I want to ask? Let me ask a quick one and then another one. First, you mentioned that freedom was a new concept brought into China in the 20th century. Was there a word in Chinese for freedom before that? No. And what word was was created to express the concept of freedom and what does it really express? Uh, this is, okay, so I... I cannot answer this question just now. Uh, I, 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 one of my, one chapter is, okay, sorry. Yeah, strike that. That's okay. So, you know, all those uh, conf uh, traditional Confucius ideals, none of that include freedom. Uh, we have uh, loyalty. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there are, sorry, I... They are they are they are just the Chinese in my mind, and I don't know quite how to accurately translate them into English. Yeah, let me just uh, leave it here, saying that no, no freedom, not freedom. Freedom is is you know so many um concepts like science, democracy, freedom, and this and that. They are really just a new um exports to China in the early twentieth century, and uh, there were a few people, uh, Liang Qichao is the most paramount intellectual in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who uh, translated, act, not translated, actually he created Chinese words for those alien concepts, such as socialism, such as freedom, and this and that. And so this is the, uh, that I know, um, it's interesting, I, and and one reason I asked because uh, in Japan, um, the the word for freedom, uh, gu, uh, is was also relatively new, but it it came in the the nineteenth century in particular, in the connection of political movements, uh, the the people and and the peoples and freedom movement, uh, and of course we also know that a lot of a lot of these concepts were mediated to China through Japan uh, as the Japanese intellectuals struggled with them. And I was actually just trying to find when uh, Jiu you know, first became used. I can't actually find, I don't unfortunately remember. It's but so by the mid 19th century, it's being used. It's so interesting you mentioned this. You know, in fact, Lian Chitao uh, used lots of Japanese words to create, you know, those new Chinese words for, uh, for, uh, Freedom and democracy, socialism. Uh, you know the 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 word the Chinese word freedom in in uh in Chinese sound just similar mm -hmm. to the Jiu. Japanese mm -hmm. sound. Yeah. So you know all those you know Liang Qichao was study studied in Japan, and so you know a lot of Euro, uh European socialist ideas were ex exported to China through Japan, and so. You know all those alien words concepts. They are um, they they cre they created the Chinese words based on uh, through uh, maybe you know, between this they adapted lots of Japanese words to uh, 
to create the, the, the Chinese version with those concepts. Right. Um, so your point, so before we get too, too much into philology and the concept of GU and Japanese and, and what it is in Chinese, um, I still was taken by your, your point about Wang Huning. Obviously, he's not a fan of, of freedom and, and of the system. Um, and of course, he hasn't written anything publicly for, for decades since he went into high government service. But, I, well, let me, ask a, let me ask a question this way. Is there anyone, given that you've read uh, what Wang Huning has written about America, his his perception his or his perceptive insights about America, is there anyone in America who's written similarly, similarly perceptively on China, right? I, I mean, first of all, Wang has has is now in the Politburo, right? He's in the Standing Committee, right? He he is he is among the the seven most powerful people in China, right? We certainly don't have anything like that here, but who? of influence in America has written as perceptively about China as Wang Huning has about America. Anyone in your view? No, no, I, I no. don't think so. That's something that's why I'm, I, I'm quite worried about this because I truly think for China or for the, the Chinese communists to America almost is an open book because this is an open society, right? And so you're not hiding anything. and. Uh, uh, all those, um, uh, you know, all those polit pol politics, political games—they are quite um, transparent um, for the outside world to see. But no, China and the 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 Is the, the Communist Party—they are such opaque um, organization. They and and as I said in at the beginning, because uh, America, Americans really just. Uh, um, has this delusion that um, you know all those values you cherish? In fact, those are not values; those are really uh, traditions, bequests from your forefather. I don't think freedom is such a self-evident. I mean, I don't think you know this. Uh, you know, I don't. Okay, so I just I I don't think that those are self-evident truths. They are cultural bequests handed down from your forefathers. You know, mm -hmm. like I said, like I read in my articles, American freedom is a prior to American Republic. Those are not abstract ideas. They are concrete cultural bequests. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so, so then why, so why do we though make that presumption uh, uh, in, I guess, I guess your, your point is we see it as universal and therefore we make, we make the presumption yet we have the texts, we have it in front of us from China. Are, do we just not, do we just not read Chinese well enough? Literally, do we just not understand it when, when we read it? Are, are, are our scholars not that well-trained? This is an argument that others have made about, uh, first of all, trying to understand pronouncements by the communist party, um, even in even when and particularly when they translate it, you simply can't take it all at face value, right? There are hidden meanings, there are different meanings. Um, this is is stuff that people like Tanner Greer and others have have talked about. Um, is it just that we're not trained well enough to really understand? Whereas in English, it's, no, no. it seems pretty straightforward. No. Okay, so the, here comes to my another argument that I think for a long time American study 
Chinese politics only focus on the party, only focus on the leadership, whereas grossly oversight uh, ignore the people, the traditional political, traditional Chinese political culture. And that's why they, you have a long time have such a distorted image of Chinese politics. Chinese politics. You have to really, for instance, so by that I mean, if you want to study American politics, you, you have to look at the American people. You have to, to take a close look at the American national character, right? Otherwise you wouldn't understand American politics just by focusing on the two parties. That's just a really, a a small part of the story, but for I don't I I doubt. Uh, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I doubt uh, there are many uh, scholars. They really uh, spend time trying to understand Chinese people. The argument be that because China is not a democracy, and the people <laughs> have so little say, that you comparatively need to study the Chinese people for political understanding. Yeah. Less than you study the party. I'm not saying you don't. People, I don't think would say do, do don't you know study the, the Chinese, Chinese people. Do you know what the Chinese people want? They don't want freedom. They want security. They want. They don't to, want freedom. They want security. No, they want. They want. Yeah, they want to be taken good care of. They they don't care. They, so you're saying you're saying the people in the party are in alignment. Yeah, exactly. I'm okay. trying to make argument that you know it is the people who really carries the party forward. The, pe the people, the oh gosh, the hundreds of millions of Lao Baixin, they they don't they they prefer security. They prefer a benevolent father to take good care of them. They 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 don't really want freedom. So that's a, that's an incredibly important uh, point, and one that uh, I think many people in America are, are let's let's be honest are very hesitant and worried about making. One thing that you hear very often these days uh, is when people are talking about uh, China, uh, you know, they're talking about policy issues, right? China wants to do X, China wants to do Y. Increasingly, they preface it by saying, now I'm talking about the party, not the people. Because the presumption is that the people want freedom. That goes to your point about this being a universal desire. And a fear, again, I think we have to be honest here, a fear of, first of all, being you know charged as, as being insensitive or even racist, that Chinese don't understand or don't want freedom, don't want democracy, because all people do, as well as a real concern, I think, with accepting the implications of what that means, the implication of presuming not that the party and the people in China are opposed to each other, but that they're actually aligned, because that would make American policy much more difficult, because the presumption is you just have this rapacious, oppressive, totalitarian, authoritarian party that is making China a threat to its neighbors or a threat internally to minorities or the like. But if that's not the case, if it is the case that this is widely shared by the people in China, then I think you have really significant implications for America's interaction with Chinese as well as policy. And I think that a lot of people want to shy away from that. 
sorry, shy away from what? Shy away meaning that they're that they don't want to they don't want to acknowledge that that may be true because oh, it, it's sorry. very it's very worrisome. It, it it is it is but that, that's that's the that's the truth. I mean, at least that's the truth as I see. I mean, it it is a really hard, hard to swallow, but that's the truth. Truth I see. That's the the. That's the the argument I'm trying to make, and uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I, I understand. I, th I think that there's a lot. I haven't seen that particularly in your writing. I mean, you you take a much more, uh, at least in these, a, a very impressive academic, almost top down approach to saying this is what uh, political philosophy is. I think it'd be really interesting um, to see I, an I, argument from the I, bottom up. I wrote I wrote a second article after that, and the title is the Chinese story. And in this piece, I focused on uh, to depict what the Chinese people are like, and uh, yeah, what's the moral ideals in that culture is. The moral ideal in that culture is not freedom, is security, is harmony, is uh, obedience, is conformity. And all those moral ideas, and also, they are also moral facts. They are just not the ones you guys are used to in the West. And I think it is, I think it is time for Americans to pause and just, just walk outside of the Western framework and just to look at China in its own terms and to take a good close look at the people. Just think Chi uh, Chinese civilization is the only civilization that has sustained for millennia. So there has been reason in that and the people are a, a major player in that picture because yeah, this goes back to my, my thesis about Confucianism predisposed the Chinese people to a totalitarian or authoritarian rule. And uh, that's because they want harmony. They 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 want um, they want security. Yeah, because you know, um, freedom is actually quite a messy, and freedom is very costly. As, yes. as Americans, you must know this very well, right? And it it, it actually it, it costs a lot to to fight and maintain freedom. And no, none of that is really the ideas for Chinese. They want different things. And that is because of the teaching of Confucianism that has going on for millennia. Where, where is that um, article, by the way, that you mentioned, the oh. Chinese story? <laughs> I, I've looked at uh, that, that I, one I didn't no, find. No, no, I haven't got it published. I just, I oh. wrote it and I, I was, um, yeah, so. Well, that I'm, we would, that we would like to see. Um, Look, I think Maybe we're we're, we're almost out of time. Um, uh, you have also written, and I, I don't actually want to get into it today because it's a different, uh, it's a completely different issue. But you've written a lot on how you what you see happening in America is reflective of what you saw in China in terms of where our society is going, uh, in terms of the the degradation of. Um, of uh, public discourse, uh, of public shaming, of of uh, the coddling of children. You wrote a big piece for the Wall Street Journal on that. So there's a lot of other of other writing. Um, I think for the the purposes of listeners, uh, we we have to mention because they want to look you up. So I think we have to mention your name so they can look up your writings. So Habi H A B I and Zhang 
Z-H-A-N-G, but that's what you publish under. And so people uh, can, can look you up there. I think um, when this piece on the Chinese story comes out, I think that will be extremely uh, provocative, if not controversial. And I think it, it's going to be something that um, uh, is going to be very interesting uh, to read because you're really taking on a lot of the longstanding uh, shibboleths, the longstanding beliefs uh, of the Chinese studies community here, and quite frankly, the policy community. Um, so this was this was a lot of pretty deep stuff, you know, talking about political theory, and uh, but then translating it to where we are today, and I and I think that was really important. So, um, Hobby, good luck on finishing the dissertation. I think when you when you do and you ultimately turn it into a book, again, it's going to be a very a very provocative book. Um, are you planning? Do you think you, you're going to be teaching in an American university? Is that what you will you go on the job market, or what's your plan for oh, after the dissertation? I want to apply for Hoover. <laughs> That's no, great. Immediately, I I have no hope of finding a teaching position on campus. You know, even with all my uh, victim privileges. I don't think I am able to find a teaching position on campus. So, well, I think that the fact that you've been writing a lot is going to, uh, quite honestly, it's going to help you with a lot of different places. Uh, I think Hoover would be a great place, and there are others as well. So, when the time comes, uh, I'm sure uh, a lot of the listeners will have <laughs> recommendations for you and and suggestions. Uh, and obviously, we're we're happy to help in any way we can. But um, but good luck finishing up uh, if you're going to finish it by next um, next summer, hopefully, and and then I think turning it hopefully turning it into a book. But continuing to write really interesting articles. So again, um, hobby, and I and I just for the listeners, I have to say hobby Zhang, but say hobby. Uh, you can look up at her articles on uh, Law and Liberty, um, Wall Street Journal, Imaginative, Conservative, and and other places, and, and really thoughtful and and provoking um, insights into uh, both America, but also China. Um, so thank you for joining us uh, on the Pacific Century. And I hope we'll have you back sometime to talk uh, to talk more. Oh, thank you. So for the Pacific Century, this is Misha Oslin. Uh, we will see you again in a few weeks. Bye bye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.